It's good to be here. I don't like your weather. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody should. I was so excited to leave Alaska and get out of endless, I, I don't know, I, I like the snow, don't get me wrong. I don't like it anymore. I don't want it, once March 1st hits, it's time to change seasons. And Alaska has not gotten any message like that this year. So we're still snowstorm after snowstorm. I barely made it to the airport. When was that, Thursday, Thursday morning? Yeah, Thursday morning I had to leave for the airport at 2 a.m. We had to take two runs to get through the drift at the end of our driveway. And a couple hours later, uh, the people who tried to get through there got stuck. So I made it to the airport, but anyway. So I get down here and it's snowing, that's very rude. <laughs> but I'm glad to be here and it does feel like family and I recognize a lot of you, although not from this angle, I've been joining you for morning services for about three months right now, so I recognize the back of your heads, some of you that sit closer to the front, so it's good to see you. Right now I see who's sitting where, that's awesome. Well, I want to introduce you to the shape, uh, the table today. We heard from our, um, you don't call it Adventureland here, the children's pastor, is that what you call her? Uh, uh, heard her talk about it a little bit, and we're going to do church for bigger people with the table over here. Um, and the little guy behind me woke me up because he screamed pizza to the back of my head and then screamed cookie to the back of my head and it rattled right down my spine. So I'm awake, I'm ready to go, and I'm not going to have you yell any food that are, that's on the table today. So the main point of the message today is that everything flows out of this point. God loves you and he likes you and he wants a real relationship with the real you. I met Jade when I was teaching a Bible study at Change Point Church, about 150 women in a room, and they were all around their little tables with their group leaders. And uh, I noticed on the first day of our new study that there was this, this strange woman that was sitting about halfway back and her hair covered her entire face. Couldn't see her face at all. And she was making sure that hair stayed in place. About a, two tables away was another woman who had her back to me, because they were round tables, and she had her back to me, but had her face towards this lady with the hair covering her face. And I just thought it was odd. I noticed it. And the next week they came and they were there, same thing. Only this next week, she had her hair over her face but had her face down on her table the whole time. No engagement with the rest of her table, no engagement with me. By week number three, the leaders came up as I walked in to get ready to teach and they said, there's a woman in the back closet. And it's the back closet where they store all the chairs and the tables for that room and we can't get her out, and, and um, just thought you ought to know that. Well, everybody was happy around their round tables and chatting, so I thought, I'll, I'll go back in the closet. So I went back there and uh, made my way to the very back of the closet, and there she was with her hair covering her face, sitting cross-legged on the floor. So I sat down cross-legged right in front of her, and I said, would you like to talk? And she said to me, if you knew me, 
If you knew what I've done and what I know, you would never let me back in here. I don't belong here. You would kick me out. I said, well, I don't know. But try me. Why don't you tell me, and we'll see if I kick you out. And she began with one sentence after another, began dribbling out little pieces of her life and her story in broken words. And after each sentence, I said to her, I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm still here. By this time, tears began to flow down my face. The story was so horrible. I'm still here. I wanted to run now. I'm still here. And after we cried together for a little while, I said, I want to talk to you after the class. So she got out, came, sat at her table, put her head down on the table, and, and waited for the whole, the whole course of the class. But immediately after the class was over, this other woman had taken her and was gone. Didn't get to speak to her. She came back the next week, and I was glad. And she, at the end of the class, came up and stood kind of around a crowd of women that were down there at the front waiting patiently to have a, a minute with me. So I finally got to step aside to her. And one of the things that I had mentioned as I was speaking was that uh, my mom is British. I grew up in a very tea snobbery home. And we loved scones and tea at our house. And so I had mentioned something about tea and scones. And so she came up and said to me, I make really good scones. Can I bring you a scone next week? And I said, I would like a scone. would love a scone, in fact. But I don't want it next week. I want it this week. And I want you to bring two of them to my office, and I'll make the tea, and we'll eat the scones together. So she did. She came with some maple scones. They were absolutely delicious. And we sat down in my office, and I made some tea. And I said, tell me your story. And she began to tell me a story that led me to a place where I was face down on my floor as she spoke. I couldn't breathe. I left the room and went and threw up. Why are you here? Why are you telling me the story? So somebody gave me a CD that you'd spoken on, uh, and you were talking on the love of God, a shape called the table. And I came to find you. It took me a while to figure out where you were, and I registered for your class because I came to tell you that... Your message is killing women. If people believe that God loves them, they're going to drop their guard. And like me, they will be destroyed for that. Love lures people into entrapment. The worst abuse that's happened in my life happened to me because I dared to believe that somebody loved me. After listening to her story and the words that she spoke, the words that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life felt like blasphemy. I couldn't tell her God loved her. When we both had to acknowledge the truth, he did not spare this frail, small woman from the worst abuse humanly possible against any child. The bloody truth is this. 
God loves this woman to a point that sparing his only son was an easy option for him. She alone was worth the cosmic battle with Satan himself for her heart. He gladly went to the cross just for her. And this is also true. I can't think of a more vile, evil, disgusting damage done to anyone. She even endured satanic ritualistic abuse. Beyond words, I will never repeat the story that I heard. And she was a helpless child, and God never stepped in and protected her. Is anyone feeling uncomfortable yet? We don't get to play lip service to something as foundational as the love of God. It is not a refrigerator magnet or a bracelet that we wear. It's an epic story grounded in a battle that lasts for 66 books of the Bible, a letter of ultimate love from a creator God to his created, And in those 66 books, the story of the love of God is put on display in the most spectacular way, through horrific battle, blood, torture, betrayal, sacrifice, as this cosmic battle for our hearts was waged. So central to life itself is the the idea that I'm loved by a creator God, that every single decision I make for the rest of my life, where I go, what I do, is impacted by what I believe about whether or not he loves me. So should we not figure out what it means to love God? Should we not figure out what it means that this cosmic God that This God that is spirit that lives outside of space and time wants an intimate relationship with somebody that is stuck in space and time. What does that even look like? And beginning to go back into scripture and really take that apart and look at it, I knew that the word that we have in our English language is not sufficient, love. We have one word. And I can tell you that I love my husband, and I can tell you that I love ice cream, and those are two very, very different things on most days. (laughs) In the Old Testament, we have two words for love, and in the New Testament, we have four words, and I want to pick on this word out of the New Testament for just a minute, the word agape, and many of you have heard it. You might have some kind of cute scrolling of it on your wall, and and if you look in your Bibles and you look in the... uh, where it lists the definition of such a word, it's going to say unconditional love. At least it does in the NIV. And if you go deeper and look at what this word really means, it comes from a compound word made up of two words, and it means charity feast, or like free food, but really good food. And it represents the table for me. As we begin to talk about what the love of God does, I want to draw a picture of a table because... A table represents both aspects of the love of God. You can't have a table and a feast without somebody who prepares something for the table and somebody who consumes. Nobody really makes a feast for themselves. As we think about the idea of the love of God in terms of food and feasting, you'll begin to see all through scriptures, littered with scriptures that reference the love of God and the consuming of food 
or a banquet all through scripture. I've just, I'm going to highlight a couple of them for you just to give you a flavor, but you can do your own research and find these. Open your mouth, this is Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Open your mouth, taste, and taste. Open your mouth and taste. Open your eyes and see how good God is. Blessed are you who run to him. Actually, that's Psalms 34, 8. Then Isaiah 55, 1 through 3. Hey there, all who are thirsty, come to the water. Come, come to the water. Are you penniless? Come away. Buy and eat. Come, buy your drinks, buy wine and milk, buy without money, everything's free. Do you see the charity feast here? Why do you spend your money on junk food and your hard-earned cash on cotton candy? This is the Message Bible. As I said earlier in the class, obviously, cotton candy is in the Message Bible. Listen to me, listen well, eat only the best, fill yourself with only the finest, pay attention, come close now, listen carefully to my life-giving, life-nourishing words. I'm making a lasting covenant, commitment with you, that same, the same that I made with David, sure, solid, enduring love. Now let's look at the two words in the Old Testament that are for love. We'll get through this part, and then we'll really start talking about that table I want to, both, both words in the Old Testament represent the lover and the beloved. The lover is the one who lays the feast on the table, and the beloved is the one who consumes. And as you go through the Old Testament, and I'm not going to do it for you here because you can do this. You just download or open up Blue Letter Bible and find every reference that you can to this word that represents the lover, hesed. C-H-E-S. S-E-D. And write down every time that word shows up. Hesed is the love of the lover. Hesed is a love that, that initiates. It's a bestowing love, a provider love. It's a love that prepares a feast. It does not require the love of the beloved to exist. Hesed love can exist all on its own. It is often compared to a lavish feast, and beyond just practical nutrition of kale, hesed represents lavish love. Now the other word is ahav. It's spelled ahab, A-H-A-B. And look this one up. Now write down every time you see this word referenced in terms of our love relationship with God. And you're going to see that this word represents the love of the beloved. So let's look at what the definition of this, this type of love. It is very, very different from hesed love. It is a love of desire and delight. It carries connotations of appetite, feasting at a banquet. It arouses desire and delight. It's a reaction or a response to an initiator love. Ahav responds to Hesed love. Ahav cannot exist because it is a response love. It cannot exist without Hesed love. How interesting that loving God, when it talks about us as the beloved, loving the Father, is not that loving God does not mean to do, but rather to want to do. The starting point for understanding love is war. 
I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God so longs to restore the intimacy of the garden, friendship, perfection, that he would go to every length to fight for you, including the death of his own son. He stopped at nothing. Hebrews 12.2 says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecting of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. The joy that was set before Jesus as he faced the cross, think about that. As Jesus faced the cross, there was joy set before him. What was that joy? That joy is me. That joy is you. That joy is me in a relationship with God. That's all he cared about. It was worth it to him. We are the spoils of that war. As I work in the field of combating sex trafficking, I'm exposed to the darkest, vilest, grossest things on the planet. Yes, I've been to trauma counseling for secondary trauma. The question often comes up, where was God? Why? If God is so good, couldn't he just end this now? How could he allow this? There's something so profound in the extremity of the choice that we were given that there's no distance that the human heart can go away from the creator. Satan's domain is as, is as extreme in its death and torture and destruction as God's domain is in his infinite goodness, mercy, and splendor. Without this extreme choice, God would not be loved. Loving God requires that I can choose. And it's not a manipulated choice. It's not a half choice. It's a choice that I get to choose evil in every form that it comes. Or I get to choose God in the extreme forms of his holiness and beauty. As a silly illustration, if, I, if my husband walked in here, wanted to stop the service and just praise me for a while, offer me lavish gifts, I suggest diamond-studded earrings, something like that, I'd be okay with. If he came in here and wanted to do that, and he had a, a huge, beautiful bouquet of flowers, too. Actually, you know, that's not true. I don't love a big bouquet of flowers as much as I love a big bouquet of Alaskan king crab legs. Okay, now we're talking. So he comes in, and he's, got, he's bearing gifts, right? And he comes, he stops the service, and he just tells you, I just got to tell you, my wife is incredible. She's amazing and wonderful, and I just want to stop and just honor her for a minute. I'd be okay with that. I would feel loved by that. I would not feel loved if he had a gun held to his head and was forced to do it. God cannot be loved if he makes no other option for us. Does that make sense? It is in this context of war and the choice that we have, that the greatest command of all times in Scripture lands. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Respond. 
The verse, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength could be translated like this. If I put the correct words in for what the verse is saying here. Find your deepest desire in the Lord your God. Desire him and delight in him with your whole heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. In essence, we are being, at, we are being asked to recognize our need for the rescue and respond to a rescuer. That is how we, the beloved, love the lover. We merely respond. With our hearts, we respond to the affection of the Father. We feel it. There's emotion attached to it. When we love with our soul, we trust that God, what God says is true in the deepest part of who we are. And we live as though we have a new future because we do. And when we love with our strength, we will our lives and we order our steps into a life of obedience because we were first loved by God. And we want to. So what is on the menu as we pull up a chair to this amazing feast that we call love? What's on the menu? The dishes that I know I've tasted in recent months are these. You'll have your own list. Mercy. Forgiveness. Adventure. Deep friendship. Peace, comfort, freedom, wisdom, worth, and value. See, God doesn't just love us and orchestrate our lives from afar like the big master chess player in the sky moving pawns around, trying to love us because I want to build character in you, make things work in your life from a distance. No, he is intimately detailed, involved in all of it. Your ups are his ups and your downs are his downs. He weeps over us. He rejoices over us. He longs with us. I believe that the longings of our heart are actually placed there by him. He enters into relationship with full emotion. That was never taught to me in the churches where I grew up. I thought that the bad things that happened to me, God kind of stood back and he watched and he says, well, I've allowed this because I want to build character into your life. So I'm going to let this horrible thing play out for you because you need more character. You know what I say? I don't want more character then. Because I don't want these bad things to happen to me. Now, can God use bad things to build character? Yeah, but that's not his motivation. When bad things happen to me, God's not thinking about how my character will change. His heart is broken. He grieves. And the tears that I cry over my own pain in life, or over the pain of the people that I love, are such a tiny little fraction compared to the buckets that my father has wept over me. You know, my twins were born nine and a half weeks early, and Austin's my oldest child. He, he came two years before them, so I had my hands full. And uh, the babies came nine and a half weeks early, and it was the, the summer where 
myself or, or one of them or both of them, we, the whole summer somebody was in the hospital. The summer of 92, I will remember it for the rest of my life. And my daughter was not expected to make it. And every day that went by for five and a half weeks from her birth to the time that she got surgery, for those five and a half weeks, every day, we didn't know whether she'd be alive or not. Every time the phone rang, my heart stopped. I was at the hospital as much as I possibly could be, but I was also hospitalized for part of that time, and I was on bed rest. And going to the hospital meant that I would cause a lot of damage to myself. I was told after a very extensive emergency surgery in which the babies were born that the worst thing I could do is use my stomach muscles, which meant no crying. And I needed to stay in bed, but I would not. I left every morning and went to the hospital and sat by her. The problem is, if I was with her, her heart began to race faster because she could hear my voice. If I touched her, it made her heart race to a dangerous level, and she could have died of cardiac arrest because her little heart was pumping blood not where it needed to go. And so she was put on an induced depression, and I could only look at her without touching her. Then they finally allowed me 15 minutes a day to hold her. It was horrific. I remember one old lady from our church, a lot of people were dropping by and bringing flowers and cards and and were in it with me and and really well-intentioned. But I'd finally had enough of well-intentioned people. I was angry. Who in the world does God think he is? Why am I being punished? Why is he taking her away? And this woman came in with a bouquet of flowers, and the nurse said to me, these were, these are, and this woman standing outside the door, they weren't allowed in the NICU where I was, but she's standing outside the door, would like to give you some flowers, would you like to step out for a minute? I said, tell her to put them in the trash can. And she was too embarrassed to go do that, and she disobeyed me. And she said, well, how about I just set them over here? I said, I want the flowers in the trash can, and don't let another flower come into this room. Well, okay, I'll just, I'll just take them down the hall here. And she says, she has something to say to you. And I looked around the corner, and there she stood with her Bible open like this. And I peeked around the corner. I said, if you're going to read to me Romans 8:28, I will rip it out of your Bible and shove it down your throat. And I walked back into my daughter. I wasn't doing them very well. I feel bad about that. And I've, I found her later and apologized. And I, I was losing it. And the, the, I think the social worker finally came by this afternoon. I think they thought that things were, well, things were not okay. I was losing it. And so they brought in a book, and they said, would you like to talk to somebody? I said, no. The only person who can change it is refusing to do so. They handed me a book, preparing a mom for a baby that's going to die, had mothers holding their deceased infants in little tiny caskets, and I ripped the pages out and threw that in the trash too. Said, I just really don't want visitors. Yeah, we think it's best you don't have any for a while. (laughs) I'm not saying it was all a right response. 
but I longed for the heart of my baby girl to live. I felt helpless and out of control, and God didn't seem to be stepping in. There is nothing I wouldn't do to save her if I could have. What would it have felt like to you if I told you that my daughter was in that state and instead of the horrible story that I just told you, I said, you know what? I can't fix this. Only one who can is God. And I don't know if it's his will or not. We'll see. We'll see what his perfect will is. So I'm going to go home, take care of my body, take care of my other premature infant and my two-year-old son. And you guys do whatever you need to do. I'm just going to trust Jesus. And when the outcome, whatever it is, she lives or dies, call me and I'll come either gather her up or I'll, I'll bury her. What kind of mom would I be? But that's exactly how we think God cares for us. He meets our needs, steps in when necessary to cover the bases, and how ironic that I, a mere human, can feel so much heartbreak and love for my new daughter that I can't bear to pull myself away from the hospital. But I might think that God, who is infinitely way more loving than I am, doesn't shed a tear on my behalf or feel deep emotion over every aspect of my life? The ups and downs of my life move the heart of the God of the universe at a very emotional level. John eleven thirty five, one of my very favorite verses. I recommended to the class this weekend that they memorize this verse. I think some of them might have. John eleven thirty five. 35, the verse is this, Jesus wept. It lands in a very unusual place for Jesus to weep. He was on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead who had just died. Lazarus, Martha, and Mary, his two single sisters that lived with him, three of them lived together very close to Jesus. He visited them often. And Lazarus had died and their beloved brother was gone, which not only meant their beloved brother was gone, but it also meant that they were not going to be with, with income or sustainable life because all of the home belonged to the male heir. And so this was a big deal that Lazarus died. And Scripture even tells us that Jesus stayed away for four days. So it's not just death. We see, we see Jesus raise other people from the dead, but this was already... Grave clothes, in the grave, stinky, dead. And Mary races out to meet Jesus. She hears he's coming back. She runs to meet him. And outside the city, she meets him there. And this is where this verse lands. When she says, Jesus, if you would have only been here, Lazarus would be alive. And Jesus' response is to weep. And the word here for weep isn't like a little tear, like, there, there, Mary, I'm sad for you. It is a a guttural sob as if in mourning. Jesus mourns the death of Lazarus with Mary. Jesus knew he was moments away from the biggest miracle that would only be outdone by his own resurrection. This was a turning point in his ministry. He still wept. Jesus knew that he was about to fix what was wrong for Mary. He still wept. The reason she's crying was why Jesus is going. 
He was about to fix what was wrong. He stopped to weep. He didn't explain how his glory was going to be on display and how many would receive him as a result of this amazing miracle. He wept. He didn't tell her that her brother's death would be used in a powerful way or it would build lots of character in her. He wept. It wasn't enough to just make it right and tell her to have joy in her heart and to come along for the ride. No, he wept. Jesus is in this with us. When we look at ourselves as the lover in the relationship with God, it requires us to do something or bring something to him, and this is legalism at its core. We are the responder. Let's go back to the table. What if I prepared an amazing meal? We had an amazing meal last night at Sally and Mike's house, beef stroganoff which if you haven't been to Sally and Mike's house for beef stroganoff, you should invite yourself over. <laughs> it, was, it was worth it. Is that okay to say that? All right, so she's fine with it. I don't know, is there leftovers? Can they come today? Okay, there's the leftovers. You can come today. If I invited you over and I was making a fantastic farm-to-table meal and I was getting the best cuts of meat, let's say it was Thanksgiving and I was going all out, all out, and I beautifully set the table, ivy down the middle, flowers, just absolutely stunning. The dishes were the same that you might see on the chef's table, all the little, only bigger portions. But amazing, like just lavish, glorious, glorious meal. And you're on your way over, and you decide to swing through McDonald's. How do you think that would make me feel? You're like, I'm not sure Gwen's a great cook. I don't want to go totally hungry just in case the food isn't good. Let's just get something in our bellies. So you swung through McDonald's. I would not be happy. I would also not be happy if you showed up with your own turkey because you were afraid mine wasn't as good as yours. Have you ever been to a meal like that where someone shows up with their own dish? I have. It's awkward. Or you think, if I eat the good food, that I'm going to be expected to turn around and make a meal for them. I'm going to be expected to do the same thing, so let's not go. Is that how we respond to the feast? I do at times. I don't want to trust that God, what God makes is good, so I make sure and I meet my own need first. If I eat God's food, he's going to make me do something for him, probably send me to Africa. I was okay with it till a missionary visited our home one time and they had these bugs in resin, and I'm like, I'll never go to Africa. I don't feel called at all. The thing about it is I find glory in myself as a chef when you sit at my table and you pick up a fork and you are overcome with the goodness of it. 
I am glorified in myself as you enjoy the good food that I prepare. I want to see you eating and eating and eating and bragging to everyone around you, taste this, taste this, taste this. God is glorified when we are satisfied. God is glorified when I pull up a chair and sit at his table and eat what he's offered. My job is not to cook for him. And this is not, as Austin reminds me, this is not a potluck. We don't all bring food. God has prepared for us a table full of his hesed love, and our job is to respond to pull up a chair and pick up a fork. That is it. What does it look like to wage war on behalf of the men and women who are in a lost and dying and broken world around us? I don't leave the table and say, I'm going to go try to look up those dishes on Google and replicate them for other people out there in the dying world. No, I scoot over and I pat the seat next to me and I invite others along to the table too. Maybe I hand them a fork. I had a, a mentor in one of our small groups uh, one of the huddles that I was leading, and she showed up at huddle. This is probably a good 10 weeks in. And showed up at huddle one time, and she said, I just really need prayer. I don't like my mentee. And this woman who had escaped out of sex trafficking, she says, I really don't like her. I've been walking with her for several weeks now. She never shows up. Half the time, she leaves me hanging in a coffee shop. The other time, she texts me 15 minutes that she's as after I've been sitting there that she's not coming. She's rude to me. She says unkind things. She has never said thank you for the kindness that I've bestowed upon her. And, and it's just not working out. I don't like her. I feel, and she makes me feel like I'm a terrible mentor. And I said to her, she says, so, so I think I need to quit. I think I'm a bad mentor. And I said, I believe you. I believe you're a bad mentor. And then the rest of the group got quiet. It was awkward. Nobody wanted to look at me at that point. But here's the point, which I said to her. You've been coming to my huddle for 10 weeks now, complaining about yourself as a mother, and you never get it right as a wife, and every area of your life is undone, and nothing seems to be working for you, and there doesn't seem to be any area of your life that you feel good about. Until you've sat at the table and you have tasted mercy on your own life, what do you have to offer her? Until you've sat at the table and you've tasted forgiveness, we don't get to offer, for, we don't get to tell anyone about forgiveness. If we haven't tasted beauty, how can we draw people to a beautiful God? If we haven't tasted faithfulness, how can we tell people that God is faithful? And if we haven't tasted what it means to be loved by God, how do we tell others that God loves them? I'm going to share my own story of the table and a gal that I was mentoring at a time named Jade, same gal from the closet. We talked a lot about love. I, got, I had the, the privilege of, of leading Jade to Jesus 
And we are still very close friends to this day. I actually invited her to come to Dayton with me. She couldn't because of work, or she'd be here telling her own story. But when Jade and I were talking about the table afterwards, I said, when was, what was the first dish you ate? Where were you? What did that taste like? And we began to share. And I, This is the story that I was sharing with her. She's taught me so much. But I also had my back to the table. And it's not that I had never tasted the deliciousness of what was on that table. I had, and I had often. But I quickly got up from the table over and over again and ran back to my big ministry job, and I cooked on this rickety stove over in the corner. And I was whipping up sauces, good stuff over here. I so wanted God to be pleased with what I was adding to that table. And I would cook and cook, my back to the table, and then in all love, Jesus would come over and just turn the dials up a little bit. Now I'm bouncing from pot to pot a little bit faster, hoping they don't boil over. And he comes back over and he just turns the knobs again. Now I'm racing from, I'm trying to bat down the foam as it's beginning to come up over the tops of the pans. And, and I see Jesus coming back, hopefully to rescue me from this, what's going to end up is burned sauce. And he just turns the heat up again. This time I have to back up. The lids come off, it all boils over, all four pots running down the side of the stove, leaving a horrible mess all over the floor. And then I get the gentle tap on the back of my shoulder, turn around, led back to the table. And as as I sat there, looking at a feast that was already made, didn't need my sauces didn't even want my sauces. He wanted me to taste a dish that he had specially prepared for me, and that dish was called rest. It was delicious. The woman next to me, as I was back by the stove, was was Jade. Her back was to the table as well. She was being trafficked. We were not really all that different. Instead of cooking on a a stove trying to impress God, she was taking their tears as they fell from her face and rubbing them around on the floor to make some kind of mud, and then she'd lick her hand and pretend that what she was tasting was the food she saw on the table because she was not worthy to sit there. I remember looking back at Jade and patting the chair next to me, please come. Jesus led her over, and she took up a position next to me, and we both just sat there staring at each other. And I reached over across the table, and I slid this dish closer to her. Mercy. Forgiveness. And as she began to eat and weep, I offered her a little bite of my rest over here, and she then did this to me. I needed mercy. That's what it looks like to walk with people in the margins. To ask them to sit next to us at the table and feast on the goodness of God. I want to close. I I was up early this morning. I feel like God wanted me to tell you something here at, at Apex. 
Jade has two tattoos on her body. And one of them is a, a cross across her entire back. And the cross is there. One of the things that one of the biggest privileges that I get to do walking with sex trafficking survivors is the cover up of scars that, or, I mean, uh, the cover up of tattoos that have been put there by a trafficker. And there's a lot of planning and a lot of artistry that goes into how to make the perfect cover, a, a tattoo that will cover this horrible thing. Maybe it's a name, maybe it's a barcode, whatever. And, and turn that thing that's so ugly and feels so permanent, makes you feel like you belong to somebody else, and turn it into something beautiful. So we spend a lot of time talking about dreams and beauty. And uh, it, as a, a child who was a victim of satanic ritualistic abuse, into Jade's back were carved uh, five different symbols. And then poison was poured into all of those satanic symbols and that would fester and be painful the rest of her life. And I always saw her flinch every time. We always ask if we can hug anybody. We never touch anybody in our ministry without asking first. And she always said yes, but I saw her flinch. And I assumed she was flinching because hugging was strange and unusual to her. She was flinching because of the pain when she finally admitted it. We took her down to a tattoo artist, and she asked, she, she was the one who asked, she goes, Jesus uh, has covered my life with his blood, and I'd like to cover these satanic symbols with a cross. She got up off of that tattoo table and has never experienced an ounce of pain in her back again. The other tattoo on Jade's body is a fireweed that goes all the way down her side. It's a picture of a fireweed flower with the word courage down it. Fireweed is an interesting flower because we have a lot of it up in Alaska, and when you drive in the springtime, you will see fields as far as the eye can see that are just purple, beautiful. I think I even have a slide of fireweed, fireweed in the slides if you have that. And fireweed appears after forest fires. We get a lot of forest fires up in Alaska, and so when the forest has been decimated and burned by fire, the first sign of life, that life is returning to the destruction, is the fireweed. And Jade was the first victim of trafficking into our program, and the first sign of life returning for the life of a trafficking. It's prolific. And here's what I know that God has said about your church here. Your story in this building also has some devastation to it. And we know the devastation for all churches the last couple of years has brought. We also know the devastation that's happening in Dayton, and there's been something planted deep in your heart that you guys have a desire now to go to the margins like never before in, way, in fresh new ways into those dark spaces. And when I was up early, I felt like the Lord said to me, tell Dayton that they're the fireweed. Tell Apex they're going to be the first signs of life in a devastated community, in broken places that haven't been invaded by the church yet. I don't know if it's trafficking, 
But here's what I do know. There are hundreds of voiceless girls across your city stuck in sex, sexual abuse. There are hundreds of boys, men, women even now too, trapped behind porn addiction, sex addiction. Thousands and thousands of teen girls lured into trafficking through their own insecurities, lured into horrible relationships through their own securities and their desire to just be loved. Thousands of teen boys, this, is, this crime is on the rise in absolutely breathtaking ways, but thousands of boys being extorted through the internet to send videos and photos and money to monsters who are lurking long enough to catch them in moments of curiosity and indiscretion and take from them and threaten them till they get what they want. Thousands of single moms who needed money to feed children who made a horrible decision to sell themselves that one time only to find themselves under the control of a trafficker with no way out. Your city is as broken as mine. There'll be 700 kids that age out of foster care in Alaska this year. The stats are worse here. Aged out of foster care and dropped by the system and expected to navigate life as an adult without any state assistance. These are the kids who never did find a forever home. Nobody wanted. And here's what we say to all of them. We know you're there. We hear you. We're coming for you. And we're not giving up till we find you. Isaiah 61 says this, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring them to the table, to proclaim freedom from the captives, hand them a fork, to release prisoners from darkness, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion and bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes and oil of joy instead of mourning and garments of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called, just like jade, an oak of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places that have been devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Something new is about to happen in Dayton. And it does not take not a single person more than what's represented even in this room today to do it. I know that, because I've seen it happen in Alaska. Thank you. <laughs>